Well, Cheaper by the Dozen is a biographical novel um, written by Frank Gelbreth Jr. and his sister Ernestine about their, their father, Frank Gelbreth, and his wife Lillian. And uh, what Frank Gelbreth became known for was uh, he was an efficiency expert back in the early 1900s. So um, around the 1920s in that he started using uh, time-lapse photography is the way we would understand that, uh, time-motion filming, where he would film certain processes and then watch them carefully and try to figure out what was a more efficient way of doing it, looking for wasted movements in this. And so this was kind of pioneering the field of uh, efficiency, and uh, he was credited with building modern scaffolding. If you've ever seen scaffolding, he was the one that came up with that as a more efficient way than moving a ladder around all the time. Um, he streamlined how to lay bricks most efficiently, which is a system people still use today. He invented touch typing. So the idea where you're looking at the screen and you're just typing, knowing exactly where your fingers need to go. He was the one that figured out a system to teach people that. Um, he figured out systems to help people learn languages quicker than they had before. And he also found the way, the best way to take out tonsils. Um, so if you've had your tonsils removed in an efficient manner, it was because of Frank Gelbreth. Now, the way he did a lot of these things is through employing the labor of his 12 children. That's right, he had 12 children on their honeymoon. He and his wife realized on the train ride that they had not discussed whether or not they would have children. And he realized this was a big oversight because he wanted a large family. Good thing for him, so did she. And so they decided right then. He took out his notebook and he said, um, how many would you like? And, and they kind of negotiated and eventually they settled on an even dozen. Six boys, six girls. He wrote it down in his day planner and that was that. And that's exactly what happened. They had this dozen children, which is where the title of the book came from because people would say, why do you have so many children? And he would say, they come cheaper by the dozen. And that's actually true because using his efficiency, he managed to streamline their budget so that it was less than the average budget for a family of six. And so if you ever read the book, you, you get glimpses of how he would teach his kids to do this. When they showered, for example, he had you know, filmed the best way to suds yourself. So the soap goes up one arm, across the chest, down the other, and that's enough. And then so you save the soap because 12 people have to use that. You know? And then while you're showering, you have to listen to a record that is teaching you Italian until all the kids could learn Italian. And then they moved on to French. And so they, while they were doing something, they were always doing something else they would go to restaurants and sit all over the restaurant and communicate with one another with Morse code by tapping the spoons um, to each other. So just brilliant kids that all did well in life. And the reason he figured out how to do tonsils was he had all of his children's tonsils taken out at the same time. Uh, well, one at a time, and they would film them and just keep streamlining the process until the 12th one was the most efficient. And that's how you had your tonsils taken out, was how their 12 kids' tonsils were taken out. Um, once... Frank told a circus ringmaster that my children have come to see your elephants. And because he was kind of famous in the town, the ringmaster said, my elephants want to see all your children. <laughs> um, and people wondered like, how he was able to keep control of this giant brood. And it boiled down to obedience. Now, he trained them from young. The first thing that they learned was to obey instructions that came from their parents. So they didn't have chaos in their home. They had order because of obedience. Um, although sometimes there were some incidents, like uh, once 
Frank Jr. writes, uh, some people used to say that my dad had so many children he couldn't keep track of them. One time my mother went off to fill a lecture engagement and left him in charge at home. When mother returned, she asked him if everything had run smoothly and if all the children had been obedient. And dad replied, I didn't have any trouble except with that one over there, but a spank him brought him back into line. The mother calmly replied, that's not one of ours, dears. He belongs next door. <laughs> the only disobedient kid was the visiting kid. Well, if you asked any of the children why it is that they became so efficient in the way they lived and why they were um, the way they were, they would all answer the same thing, because I am my father's child. Efficiency was, in a sense, in their genes. Um, they saw it in their father. Now, with that in mind, I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. What is in our genes? What do we see in our father? Why are we the way we are? Now, last week we saw that hope is what you believe will bring you future joy. And Peter is using hope. Remember, he's writing this letter to Christians that have been scattered because of persecution. And he's trying to tell them to keep calm and carry on. Don't panic. Just do the next right thing. And one of the ways that you do that is you remember your future salvation that's coming and you place your hope in the future. So you don't look around at the, the current situation and say, does God love me? Look at all the suffering I'm going through. Has God forgotten me? But rather, you look at the future that your, your salvation is secure. It's undefiled. It's un imperishable. It's, it's definitely coming. And you draw your hope from that which will not let you down. And then he gave us a directive and directions. The directive is that you must hope, and the directions are how to hope. If you remember those, the two directions Peter gave in the text just incidentally happen to be the same directions for getting a driver's license. Be prepared and be sober. Um, that's what he said here. In other words, you need to, to gird your minds. You need to um, uh, ready yourself for hope. It's not something that's going to happen automatically. You have to work at it. You have to plan at it. You have to uh, be aware of what comes into your brain, what you're watching on TV, what you're reading, the types of conversations you're having. And you need to be sober-minded. So you have to think seriously about these things and, and um, marshal your thoughts. So that's what we saw last week and the week before. Um, and now we're going to pick it up again in verse 13. Although I will read from... Yeah, we'll read from verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since written, it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Well, today we're going to focus uh, mainly on verse 14 and verse 15, and we're going to see two reasons that Christians need to be holy so that you will learn your values from your heavenly Father. We want to be like Jesus. We want to be like God the Father. And so these are reasons why we need to be holy. And the first reason is your new nature. 
And the second reason is your new father. Peter gives both of those in order. So let's look at his first reason why we need to be holy, and the one is our new nature. Verse 14, as obedience children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So do you see a command in there? Do you see an instruction? Um, Peter's kind of turned the corner now. He's been talking about our our salvation and how glorious it is and sort of the doctrine of salvation and the security of our salvation and so the hope we can get from our salvation. And now he's, he's shifting gears a little and he's going to talk about the practical side of that. So what do you do now that you know that about the salvation? Here is a command. So from, from here on, you need to spot the commands and there's three of them in this little section. And by the way, you need to do this in your own personal Bible study as well. This is a good way to study the Bible. You don't, don't just pick a random passage. You kind of pick a book at a time. You start at the beginning. That's how they were written. And you, you read it through little bit by little bit each day. And what you're looking for is things that the Bible's teaching you about God and about yourself and about the world. That's doctrine. And then often, after, especially in the epistles, after the writer has taught you something about he will shift gears and he will say, now because you know that, there's usually a therefore, therefore you're going to do this other thing because of that. And so that's what happened here. Because you've got this amazing salvation, therefore, three things. One, you need to set your hope on the the future salvation that's coming. And the second command we see here, because you've got the salvation that's coming in the future, as obedient children, here it is, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So do not be conformed. That's that's the second command. The third one we'll see next week. He, He says, conduct yourselves with fear. Live your life fearing God. And we'll have to unpack what that means. So this morning, we're going to look at this command here, do not be conformed. The command gives us a hint as what holiness is by telling us what it's not. So the rest of the passage is going to say you need to be holy. Well, what does it mean to be holy? Let's start with what it doesn't mean. What it doesn't mean is that you can be like everybody else. Be conformed to the way you were before. We, you know, we used to do this with our kids too, by the way. It's a, it's a little parenting trick somebody taught us. Is if your kid is doing something that you don't like, especially if they're very young and you can't really converse with them, they're not listening or whatever, then you mimic what they're doing. And you say, don't do this. So if the kid's like, mommy, I want, th- I want to watch more TV. I want to do this. Then you say, don't say, mommy. And then you kind of exaggerate a bit. Don't do that. Don't. Say it like this. Mommy, may I please have TV? And the answer is no. Okay, so... Whatever it is, if they throw a tantrum, you say, don't go, <laughs> go, you know, touch my leg like this and ask me for what you want. And after a while, they, they're like, ew, mommy's being weird and she's freaking out. And then they realize, oh, that's what I'm doing. So that's kind of what Peter's saying is, don't do this, rather do that. Don't do what the rest of the world does, which is conform to whatever passions, whatever desires they had before. You are now a new creature with a new nature, and so you're going to have new behavior, which he's about to speak about. So in verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Ignorance means without knowledge. There was was a time in your life where you didn't know what to do, and so you acted in a certain way. Don't do that anymore. You now know better. So I want you to turn for a moment to Leviticus. Um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. 
We don't spend much time in Leviticus. Uh, it's, it can be kind of a strange book because it was written about how the Jews had to be different, how the Israelites, shall we say, had to be different from the surrounding nations when they came into the promised land. So the, the Leviticus was given to the, the Israelites as they're about to enter the promised land after the 40 years of wandering. And they're told, when you get there, there's certain things you need to do. You need to live differently from the way you were when you were slaves in Egypt. And this law code became known as the Mosaic Law Code or the Sinaitic Law Code. It was given to Moses on Sinai. And in it, there's some pretty strange commands that when you're, if you're going to read your Bible four chapters a day, starting in January to get through it in the year, you're going to hit Leviticus pretty soon, and then you're going to quit. So sometimes I just skip Leviticus and get back to it at the end, because, you know, when there's only one book left, you're going to read it. But... Um, it's actually an incredibly important book that talks about holiness and what holiness is. And if you look in, I told you to go to chapter 11, right? Um, oh, I didn't. Go to Leviticus, go to chapter 11. Um, and while you're going there, let me just remind you what, what Peter says. So Peter says... Um, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you be holy in all your conduct, for it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Okay? Now, if you look at verse 44, Leviticus eleven forty-four. well, pick it up in like verse 41. Um, this is talking about the dietary laws, what animals you can eat and what animals you can't eat. And you say, what does this have to do with anything? Just... Trust me. Verse 41. Every swarming thing that swarms on the ground is detestable. It shall not be eaten. You know, creepy crawlies and worms and slugs and stuff. Uh, whatever goes on its belly, whatever goes on all fours, whatever has many feet, any swarming thing that swarms on the ground, you shall not eat, for they're detestable. You shall not make for yourselves detest. You shall not make yourselves detestable with any swarming thing that swarms. You shall not defile yourselves with them and become unclean through them. Why? Verse 44. For I am Yahweh your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am Yahweh, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. And you shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Now just go over to chapter 19. In chapter 19, verse 2, he says again, speak to all the congregation, tells Moses, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, verse 2, you shall be holy. For I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. And then he's got this little list of things. Um, Revere your mother and father. Verse 4, do not turn to idols, um, etc., and now go over just one more chapter to chapter 20 and look at verse 7 in the context where he says, don't use mediums and necromancers, you know, like psychics and um, tarot readings and these people that channel the dead. You know, don't, don't, don't do that um, in verse 6. In verse 7, consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am Yahweh your God. Keep my statutes and do them. And then he's got a list of things that you shouldn't do to do with sexual immorality. Uh, adultery, homosexuality, incest, um, uh, ch child sacrifice is one of those things mentioned. 
Um, and in verse 23, it says, You shall not walk in the customs of the nations that I'm driving out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I detest them. And then again in verse 26, You shall be holy to me, for I, Yahweh, am holy and have separated you from the people that you should be mine. And then he says again, don't use these mediums and necromancers that channel the dead, rather kill them. Okay, so you can go back to Peter. And you might be thinking, if that was supposed to be some sort of um, inspiration for me to read Leviticus, it failed. But no, it was meant to show you, Peter is quoting that verse that appears in those, those places. So the places where I read it to you there, um, chapter 11, verse 44, 19, verse 2, 20 verse 6 and verse uh, 20 verse 26, those places, are, that's where it's mentioned. And now Peter mentions it. So think about the context of each of those that I read it to you. Moses was saying, don't be like the other nations who eat slugs and worms and insects. Ugh. Be, be different. You know, be better. Eat food, not bugs. Um, and then don't, don't be like the nations who try to get their information by channeling the dead. And don't be like the nations who kind of just sleep with whoever they want, even you know, people in their own family, people of the same sex. Uh, don't do that. Why? Because that's what these nations did, and, and it's disgusting to me. And I don't want you to be like that. I want you to be different. I'm different. I'm holy, God says, and I want you to be holy. So I want you to be different from the other nations in the way that you eat, and the way that you run your family. And if you go through Leviticus, it's all sorts of things, the way that you dress, and the way that you cut your hair, etc., etc. Now, it is true that in the New Testament, all of those laws were fulfilled in Christ. So, if you want to eat, you know, escargot, snails, dipped in garlic butter, knock yourselves out. You know, you're not, you're not going to be punished for that. That's okay. Now, you can eat shellfish, and you can wear polyester if you want, if you really wanted to. Um, and you can do those things because that's been fulfilled in Christ. But there's a principle there that's very, very important. That we need to be different than the rest of the people who don't know God because we have a new nature. We are now a different type of people than they are. And we are a different type of people, get this, than we were. This was our former ignorance. We used to do whatever they did. But just like Israel used to do whatever they wanted to do and then was told, no, now you're a new people, in the same way, we Christians used to live a certain way, but when you become born again, you start a new life. And that's what baptism is. It's a symbol of dying to your old life and being buried with Christ and being raised into a new life that you now live differently, not according to your former passions. So before you were saved, you had strong desires for evil. After you're saved, you now know better. You're not ignorant anymore. You have a new nature. As an unbeliever, you craved money and recognition and comfort and sexual desire and feeding the flesh and drunkenness and whatever it was. That's what you craved. And it was causing you unhappiness and anxiety and depression, and you didn't even realize it. And that's okay, because you were being dumb. You were being ignorant. You were just being somebody who didn't know any better. But now that you've come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, and you know what he is like, you're no longer like that. Therefore, be holy, for I am holy. You didn't know any better, but the, the ignorance you had 
is now in the past. Remember in Acts 17 where Paul is on the Areopagus and he's busy um, preaching to the Athenians, the philosophers of Athens, and he says to them, um, you indeed are God's offspring. So you're not children of God spiritually yet, but physically speaking, we're all children of God. We're all his offspring because out of one man, he created all nations. This is what Paul says. And so because you are offspring of God in that sense, you need to stop serving idols and serve him. And so he calls them to repentance. And in doing so, he says, the former times of ignorance God has overlooked. And now he commands everyone everywhere to repent. So there's this idea in which, okay, you were doing what you did, but that was the past. And you might be sitting here today and you think, I have messed up my life so badly. I have made a thousand decisions that have ruined my relationships and my health and my finances and my reputation or whatever it is. And there's no hope for me. And I want to tell you there is hope for you. That was your former ignorance. We all live that way to different degrees and in different manifestations of our sin. But you can be born again through Jesus Christ. He paid for all of that. He paid for all of that that you did, all that ignorance, all of that sin. It's, it's, not, it's not your debt anymore if you place your faith in him. And you can be born again and raised again and be baptized into a, 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 a new life because of your new nature. And so when verse 14 says, as obedient children, a way of thinking of this is children of obedience. Children of obedience. So you, you remember this from our study in previous studies. James and John were called because they had this like thunderous nature, Jesus nicknamed them sons of thunder, right? And Barnabas was um, very encouraging. That's his nickname. So he was called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Um, Jesus was going to be stoned by the Jews because he made himself equal to God. Why? Because he called himself son of God. And so one commentator, Edmund Hebert, he says, as obedient children refers to conduct, but children of obedience refers to character and nature. And so he says a better translation is children of obedience. It's talking about your nature, like the nature of thunder was called the son of thunder. A nature of encouragement was called a son of encouragement. Jesus having the nature of God is called the son of God. And so we need to have a nature of obedience to be called children of obedience. As opposed to what Paul calls us before we were saved in Ephesians 2. Remember that? For you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the, the, the power, the prince of the power of the air, according to the, the one who's at work in the sons of disobedience. And we were children of wrath. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So we were all born like the rest of the world into the sense of like, well, we are, we're children of wrath. You know what that is, right? Wrath. Children of wrath. <laughs> Sorry, some of you were looking like, what is children of wrath? Children of anger. God's righteous wrath. And so that's who, that's who we, that's your default setting is somebody that God is angry with because you have a nature of sin because you were born with Adam's sin. You say, well, that's not my fault. Doesn't matter. That's how it is. It's not your fault fault that you were born with the sin nature. It is your fault that you like to sin. But God, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ because Jesus Christ then, on behalf of all of us, 
died on the cross to pay for that. That's the gospel. So it all boils down to this nature that we have. We're not sons of disobedience anymore. We're, we're children of wrath. We are now children of obedience. So I have, I have two pets. I have a golden retriever and I have a cat. Which one am I describing now? Um, social animal, real friendly, real loyal, loves to play. Okay, that's the dog. Which one am I, which one am I describing now? Um, mean as a snake. Um, emotionally cold. Very loyal around mean time, uh, meal time. But straight after that is just as likely to to curl up on your lap as to slice your face open with its claws and skulk off into the shadows. Which one am I talking about there? That's the cat. Okay, so we understand that certain animals, don't worry, it's not prejudice, it's just fact. Certain animals have a certain nature. In the same way, a sinner born to Adam has a certain nature. That nature is not going to choose God. It's going to choose whatever's best for itself. And they're born that way. That's why kids don't come out of the womb and say, what can I do to help? <laughs> they come out and they say, I'm hungry. Drop what you're doing and feed me or I will hit a frequency that will make you sorry. <laughs> right? And when I'm done eating, you're going to clean it up. I don't care that it's two in the morning and that you have a job. I'm in charge now. That's how they come out, right? It's just a selfishness. And it, you, that has to be trained out of you. So 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, Paul says this, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, and the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So do you now have a new nature? So you've got this old nature of disobedience or a new nature of obedience when you become saved. So let's do the little pet experiment with a person. Who am I describing now? This is a person who is unashamedly engaged in sexual immorality. They gossip. They slander the government. They complain. They're unthankful. They swear. They get drunk. They shoplift. They occasionally tell white lies about why they were late for work. They're anxious. Am I talking about a believer or an unbeliever? Yeah. What about this? A person who sins but confesses that it's sin. Hates their sin gets accountability to help them stop sinning, memorizes verses to drive those thoughts out of their mind. And every time they sin, they say, it was wrong, it was my fault. They don't make it other people's fault. And they confess their sin and they repent of their sin and they keep doing that or die trying. Is that a believer or an unbeliever? That's a believer. And so it's not whether or not you sin. Everybody sins. It's what you do with that sin. Do you rationalize it? blame shift, excuse it, or do you fight it? To confess just means to say the same thing God says. It's sinful. I shouldn't do it. It's wrong. Anytime you say anything else about your sin, well, it's wrong, but I know I shouldn't have yelled at you, but I was hungry and I had low blood sugar. Like Jesus did after 40 days in the wilderness and still didn't sin. You know, there is no excuse for sinning. So you might say now, well, what if I don't have a new heart? What if I'm not a new creation? What if I, what if I do all those things from the first list and, and, and I, I don't have this hatred for my sin? Then you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian. 
And there's so many people out there that if you ask them, um, so what, what faith are you? Oh, I'm a Christian. Oh, that's interesting because I just heard you taking the Lord's name in vain and gossiping and slandering the boss and cussing and bragging about how you were able to cheat on your taxes and now you say that you're a Christian? Have you met people like that? They're exactly like the world. Eating detestable things that crawl on their belly, as it were. They're not new. They're not different. There may be people sitting here today, well, I'm at church, aren't I? Whoop-de-doo. You know, people like, oh, I was born in a Christian home. I grew up in a, at a Christian school. I grew up going to church. Well, I was born in a hospital. It doesn't make me a doctor. You can live in a garage. It doesn't make you a car. You need to be born again. And the way that you know you've been born again is that you have a new life with new desires and new attitudes, which leads to new behavior. And if you haven't changed, you're not a Christian. Well, here's the million-dollar question. Well, how do I do that then? How do I change my nature? And that brings us to our second point. You need a new father. Don't worry, this one goes quicker. You need a new father. So you have a new nature. If you want a new nature, you need a new father. This is the second reason, if you're a real Christian, that you want to be holy, because one is you have a new nature. Two is you have a new father. Look at verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. In verse um, 16 again, so verse 16, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Verse 17, if you call on him as father... Well, since you call on him, you could say, as father, if he is indeed your father, who judges impartially according to one's deed, conduct yourselves with fear through the time of earth, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. So there was a way that you inherited from your physical ancestors, but now that you are a new creature, you have a spiritual father. And so you've been bought away from those things that you inherited. I just did this because I was taught this by my parents. No, now you have a new parent, a spiritual father. Now, have you ever heard somebody say, uh, you're just being holier than thou? Have you heard that phrase, holier than thou? What they mean is, you know, like let's say you're, you're at work and your, your co-workers want to go on a booze cruise or something, and you say, well, I'm not going to be joining you because I want to avoid the temptation to get drunk or whatever it is, yeah, I, I don't want to be associated with that kind of debauchery or that, then they're going to be like, oh, you're just holier than thou. And what they mean is you think that your lifestyle choices and your morals are superior to my morals. So you think that you're holier than me. And what you, the way you could respond is, I'm not trying to be holier than you. That would be pretty easy. Um, I'm not trying to be holier than you in the debauched culture of the world. I'm trying to be as holy as my Father in heaven. That's why I make these choices. I'm not comparing myself to you. That's between you and God, and different people make different decisions. But for me, I'm striving to be like my Father. Matthew 5.44, Jesus said, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who are in heaven. In other words, have the same character, the same nature as God. And then he says this in verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's Matthew 5, 
44 and 45. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying, that's the standard. You must be perfect because God is perfect. That changes the discussion a lot, doesn't it? Because a lot of us try to compare ourselves to other people. You know, I'm not perfect. You'll start off, I'm not perfect, but at least I'm better than those people. Hey, I'm not perfect, but I'm here on a Sunday. I'm not all pursuing my hobby, sleeping in. You know, I couldn't come to church because of my hangover. No, no, no. I dragged myself in here with my hangover. I'm, I'm holier than those people who didn't. Well, you, you're, just, you're just picking the wrong standard. That's holier than thou. Nobody cares about holier than thou. We want to know holy is God. That's perfection. And now you're thinking, oh, well, I, nobody's perfect. Yeah, you see the problem? That needs a solution. Nobody's perfect. But our text says in verse 15, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Notice it doesn't say be holy for that's what gets you to heaven. Be holy so that God will bless you. No, we are simply holy because our Father is holy and we love him and we have his nature. The Puritan uh, Thomas Watson, he says, many love God because he gives them blessings. True love is not mercenary. You need not hire a mother to love her child. A soul deeply in love with God needs not be hired by rewards. You don't do what God wants so that he will bless you. You do what God wants because you love him. You don't need anything for that. You'll do it even if it leads to your death. You know, kids want to be like their parents. That's why little girls have tea parties for their stuffed animals. It's because their mom has tea parties for her stuffed animals. I mean, for her friends. <laughs> mom has tea party for her friends, so the kid wants to have a tea party because she wants to be like mom. You know, when I was a kid, my, my, one of my favorite toys in my earliest memories, I must have been like four or so, four or five, was um, a little electric shaver that looked like exactly like my dad's electric shaver and when you pressed it it would go you know and then every morning when my dad was shaving i would stand there and i'd be shaving shaving you know shaving just like my dad well it would be a, like another you know 10 or so years before i had a five o'clock shadow but i wanted to be like him now and and that's we find that endearing but it's the same thing if you are a spiritual child of god you want to be like him you want to like the things that he likes and you, you, you want to give him the things that he likes and you want to be like him. And if you don't want that, that's a red flag. Who's, whose child are you if you enjoy sin? 1 John 3.10, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. How do you know if I'm a child of God or a child of, of the devil? Look at your life. What is my ongoing practice? What is the pattern of my life? That of the world or that of the children of God? You might say, man, this is kind of harsh to call an unbeliever a child of Satan. Friends, that's what Jesus did. John 8, 42. If God were your father, you would love me. You are of your father, the devil. 
And your will is to do your father's desires. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan lies because that's his character, that's his nature. What's your nature? Are you a liar? Where are you getting that from? You're not getting it from your father, God. So who is your father? That's the question I want to leave you with. Who's your father? You don't need a DNA test. Just look at your life. Do you lie, lust, steal, hurt, gossip, slander, fret, fear, and distrust God? Then he's not your father. Or do you love Christ and seek to obey him and to serve him and to worship him? It's a good sign. But of course, nobody's perfect. We're all just human. But you see, that's not strictly true, is it? There was one person who was perfect. Jesus Christ was perfect. That's what it means when it says he was perfect. It means that he always, at every moment in his life, wanted what his father wanted. And he was pure, and he was holy, and he said no to temptation. He said no to sin because of what his father wanted. And he did that consistently, not only in his actions, but in his very thoughts and his attitudes and his desires. He only ever wanted to love God with all his heart, mind, and strength. And he did it perfectly, even while they were killing him. And then, he dies as a blameless sacrifice on behalf of whoever believes in him. In other words, whoever trusts in that work that he did, in who he is and what he did. And so if you're sitting here today and you say, I've messed up my life, I'm in the middle of a sin right now that if people knew about, I would be highly embarrassed. None of that matters if you can turn away from it and embrace the Savior. And just place your trust in him and what he did. And, and you'll know that you've done that when you see your desires change. And you want something else. And your attitudes start to shift. And sometimes it's very subtle. Sometimes people don't know the exact day or hour that they were saved. They just know, I once was blind and now I see. I once was that way in my former ignorance and lust. And now I love the things of the Lord. I can't wait to come to church. I can't wait to sing to him. I can't wait to read his word and hear it explained. I, 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 I wake up in the morning and I, I want to fight my flesh. And I look forward to heaven, and I want to share this good news with others. Well, where does that come from? That's not natural. That's not your nature. That's like a cat learning to bark. It's just not possible unless it becomes a dog. It's not a great analogy. But you, have, you are no longer a child of disobedience. You're now a child of obedience. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Frank Gelbreth's dozen children were like him, and they loved him, and they, they became like him, and they wrote a book to extol what a great father he was. In the same way, if you are a child of God, you will love him, you will want to be like him, and you want to tell others about him. Now that you're a believer, holiness is in your genes. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, it's such a blessing to read of the power of the new birth and how we can become more like Christ day by day through the power of the Spirit in us. So we pray to you, our Heavenly Father, we love you, Lord. We are thankful that you sent your Son to make things right between us, and we can't wait to spend an eternity with you. In the meantime, I pray that you would comfort us and convict us, that you would guide us into all truth, and that this very week we would have an opportunity to tell others about our glorious Father. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.